Welcome back to Kentucky History and Haunts and part two of the Bell Breezing story. I'm Jessie Bartholomew, and when we left off, Bell had transitioned from running a small brothel in town with five employees to a giant three story mansion in the heart of the red light district in Lexington. Her clients included wealthy and high profile men from politicians to bankers to prominent figures in the horse business. But public opinion was about to change and create some serious obstacles for Belle and her business. Before I continue the story, I should mention that Belle was dealing with a morphine addiction on and off throughout her adult life and had to be admitted to hospitals every now and again. Dr. Charles A. Nevitt was the doctor who usually treated her at Elmwood General Hospital, but after several failed attempts to kick her habit once and for all, he decided that she was incurable and was given permission to prescribe her morphine, allowing her to self-administer at home whenever she wanted. This whole time, though, Belle continued to send money to her daughter, Daisy May, who had been moved from the school in Newport to live with a group of nuns all the way in Detroit. But in the early 1900s, a wave of anti-prostitution protests started in Lexington. Part of the progressive movement was the philosophy that gambling, red light districts, and saloons were the three evils that were, quote, ruinous to family life. Up until that point, prostitution had basically been considered a necessary evil. Like, people didn't love it, but it was just the way it was. They were there, pushed to the edges of society, but still available for those who wanted them. But here's what happened. In 1910, quote, a grand jury moved a routine investigation of prostitution closer to the boundaries of the red light district by taking a serious look at Dewey Street, just two blocks west of McGowan. So up until that point, they had been concerned about the brothels that were closer to town, operating in neighborhoods, but now they were extending their concern out to the red light district. And part of the problem was that the women who worked at these brothels had started acting less reserved. They were sitting out on front porches, they were calling out to passersby, and this certainly wasn't the way Belle ran her brothel. And she was so upset by this that she actually called the police and asked them to put a stop to that behavior so that she wouldn't get punished for other brothels' actions. But public opinion had swayed. And by 1911, it was clear that more and more Lexington residents didn't just want brothels mixed in their neighborhood shut down. They really wanted the entire red light district shut down, too. So a group called the Temporary Committee on Social Hygiene formed in 1913. And they planned to, quote, attack prostitution through science and education. This group had a goal to get sex education classes added to the curriculum in public schools, thinking that would dissuade young people from being tempted into going to brothels or picking up strangers off the street. Unfortunately, the crime rate was increasing in the red light district as well. It wasn't the prim and proper and even glamorous place it once was. 
There were more robberies, and there was even a murder at Bell's Brothel. A 22-year-old prostitute was stabbed to death by one of her customers. And this is a crazy side note. They found the guy the next day, and he was later found not guilty by reason of insanity, and he was institutionalized, but he escaped from the asylum on 4th Street not long after his sentencing. Things really escalated in 1914 when Hagen, that wealthy man I mentioned earlier, passed away and Charles Berryman took over his estate and sort of seemed to step into his shoes in terms of power. He made connections with lots of important people. And so Berryman, along with this other group of men, formed a vice commission. For a while, things went on business as usual, though, in the red light district. I mean, it seemed like an absurd thought that they could ever really shut it down. But Belle had some decisions to make. I mean, she was in her 50s at this point, and her daughter Daisy was in her late 30s and was still with the nuns in Detroit. And Belle could have retired right then if she wanted to. She had plenty of money saved up. But that just wasn't her. She liked staying busy. And she was proud. She was proud of her business and her lifestyle, this life that she'd built for herself. And besides, these were her people. She loved her employees and her customers, and she didn't want to leave them. But like I've said, things were changing in Lexington and things were modernizing. There were cars pulling up to her house instead of horse and buggies. New neighborhoods were popping up right and left, which housed families who were hardly excited about the prostitution business in their city. And the horse business was booming, and more wealthy people from outside Lexington were buying farmland, and a $200,000 investment had been made to spruce up the newly reopened Kentucky Association Thoroughbred Track. And this was all happening during the progressive era when other racetracks around the country were being shut down as the fight against gambling persisted. In 1915, the Vice Commission filed their report with the city, urging the government to shut down all, quote, body houses by January 1st of the following year. And in November 1915, two ordinances were passed known as the Twin Vice Ordinances. And here's what they were. Quote, The first of the Twin Ordinances defined the offense of prostitution and stated the penalties. The second ordinance amended the city's vagrancy law and provided penalties for persons found guilty. The second ordinance also made it clear that any persons caught hanging around the red light district visiting men, as well as the women who live there, were to be charged. So one of the questions kind of hanging in the air after that was, would these ordinances be taken seriously and enforced? And if so, what would happen to all these women losing their jobs? There was a plan laid out for these women. They would have the option to go stay at the House of Mercy on 4th Street, 
but the speculation was that not a lot of women were going to take the city up on this offer. The House of Mercy became the Florence Crittenden Home for Girls and Women shortly after this and was home to, quote, wayward girls and single pregnant women. It operated until the early 2010s when they didn't have enough public funding to keep it running any longer. But after the ordinances went into effect, most women just started packing their bags, planning to leave Lexington completely. Meanwhile, some of the madams who weren't quite financially able to retire were trying to fight back. They were begging the city to reconsider. And the city actually did revise their plan so that instead of being effective immediately, they would wait until the week before Christmas, giving the owners and employees just a tad bit more time to figure out their next moves. The red light district was officially out of operation on December 22, 1915. It was the end of an era. It was eerily quiet, houses were dark, no one was out and about. A few extra police officers were on patrol in the area just in case. And at the beginning of the new year in 1916, the companies who had lent many of the brothel's furniture came to collect it all. These companies, as well as liquor, grocery, and others, would really miss the income they got from the red light district. Even the telephone and electric companies reported a major decline in their receipts. An excerpt from the Lexington Herald read, quote, Yesterday, a long stream of drays bearing electric pianos, music boxes, and other mechanical instruments streamed through Main Street in an almost continuous parade from the former restricted district to the various stores from which they had been leased. And I just think it would have been so interesting to see this parade of stuff, you know, brought back from these brothels to these businesses. So what happened to Belle? She sort of slipped into the shadows after this. A handful of brothels quietly reopened on McGowan Street, including Bell's, but it would never be the same. Everything had to be done in secrecy, and that wasn't as attractive as having a fancy, showy home with beautiful girls, you know, big parties. So Belle ran a scaled-down version of her brothel, for another two years. Her lover, Billy Mabin, passed away in February of 1917, and by this time, Belle had lost so many people she cared about. It was just a really dark time in her life. When the U.S. entered World War I, Lexington residents were figuring out that some of the brothels were still operating, and they were not happy about this. And they were kind of finding out that the Lexington police were failing to enforce the ordinances. At this time, Belle had only six prostitutes working at her brothel, but they still dressed well, and she still charged a higher fee than other places. She still sold beer, too, but she did not let soldiers patronize her brothel, though others did. And this ended up being a good decision for Belle because there was a big investigation into soldiers going to these brothels and they drew a lot of attention. And this kind of scandal caused the police chief, Reagan, to resign. And after this, there was an immediate crackdown and all the remaining brothels that had stayed open were closed for good this time. 
Belle retired in 1917, and she went on to live a rather quiet existence until her death in 1940. And when I say a quiet existence, I mean she was hardly ever seen in town. She stayed in her mansion, and she had a housekeeper, and she had people who would run errands for her. And on the rare occasion she did venture into town, it was to stop by the First City National Bank for financial matters. At the start of the 1920s, Belle was growing older, and unfortunately she kind of stopped maintaining her house that she had once put so much into and was so proud of. Vines ran up the sides, the yard was overgrown, the actual structure had started deteriorating, and neighbors were even calling to notify the city. And at that time, Belle was just considering abandoning the house and moving into a smaller place she owned on Dewey Street. But this is sad. When residents of Dewey Street heard she was considering moving there, they appealed to the city manager. They did not want her living there. So the city manager sent a police officer named Margaret Egbert to talk to Belle about moving. And when she got to Belle's house on McGowan, she was amazed at how much of the interior was falling apart, just like the exterior. And it was crazy to see because it was still furnished with all this nice stuff. So it was just this stark contrast. But during the visit, Officer Egbert did manage to talk Belle into staying on McGowan, which by that time was actually now Grant Street. And so she actually stayed and repaired the mansion. She spent $2,500 on exterior repairs so that the neighbors would stop complaining. Into the 1930s, Belle was still a recluse, but she was a legend. College kids would drive by her house on Grant Street telling stories of what used to be. Um, In the late 1930s, Belle was diagnosed with ovarian cancer She was experiencing significant pain, so she was given daily doses of morphine at her home. Her physician said she would really be better at the hospital, but she said no. She wanted to die in her home. She went into a coma on August 10th, 1940, and a priest from St. Peter Church hurried over to read her last rites in her home. And very early the next morning, on August 11th, 1940, Belle passed away. She had instructed her banker, who she'd made power of attorney, to bury her as soon as possible. And the goal was actually to have her buried before reporters got word that she was dead. So she had a small, brief graveside service at Calgary Cemetery, and she was lowered next to her mother's grave. And some of Belle's closest friends who'd preceded her in death were also buried in her plot. One of the men working at the funeral home said there were only three or four people at the graveside service. One man who worked for Belle in her home and three women who'd worked for her in the past. And the total for her funeral expenses was $350. Just as she wanted, it wasn't until after she was buried that newspapers started reporting she'd died. A reporter named J.R. Kimbrough was able to go inside Belle's house after she died, and he wrote an article about it, and he finished the article with this, quote, 
The house, its furnishings, and the dank atmosphere was a silent monument to the gilded era it represented. There was a strange sense of forlornness about it all, like a temple built upon the sands that had been crumpled by the tide of moral righteousness. The Lexington Herald paper that ran this article about her death and the state of her home sold out by 10 o'clock the Tuesday morning it was released. The circulation manager at the time, Tom Adams, said it was the first time he could remember the paper being sold out on a weekday. She also had an obituary in Time magazine. She was referred to as the, quote, famed Kentucky bod who ran a, quote, plushy, luxurious salon famed for its influential patrons and for being the most orderly of disorderly houses. Now, a man named Joe Graves pulled a prank on several Lexington men, and so he sent sympathy cards to men in town that read, quote, The family of Bell Breezing acknowledges with grateful appreciation your kind expression of sympathy, and this apparently caused some major quarrels between husbands and wives, and he said he later regretted it, but I think 80 years later we can laugh about it. It's pretty funny. So... A little more than a week after her burial, there was an announcement in the Lexington Leader that there would be an auction of Belle's things. So here is the list of things that would be for sale. Entire contents of building, including large mirrors, famous horn suite furniture, cut glass, silver, china, bric-a-brac of all kinds, and other furniture. Also, 51 pieces of jewelry, consisting of a diamond necklace, diamond solitaire earrings, diamond dinner rings, rings made of other precious stones, and other jewelry of fold and stones of many kinds. And it sounds like the jewelry pieces were the big ticket items. Appraisers valued that diamond necklace at $600, which according to the internet equates to about 10 grand today. And this auction, it was a big deal, and there's a photo of the giant crowd it drew. They lined up hours before it started, they had to rope off streets, and there were plenty of women in attendance, which meant it was very likely that some of the women who bought her things were the same ones who had complained to have her shut down years earlier. So that's a little annoying. But they ended up turning this auction into a three-day event, and the empty house was locked up at the end of the third day, and by the end of the day after that, vandals had already smashed in all the windows. Now, Belle's daughter, Daisy May, was 65 years old, and she was appointed a new guardian by the Wayne County, Michigan Probate Court. But in 1948, she suffered a broken hip, and she had to have major surgery and she ended up dying at the hospital on August 15th. And instead of being sent home to be buried with her mother in Kentucky, she was buried anonymously at a cemetery in Michigan run by Franciscan monks. So a little bit about her finances. Um, The property Belle owned on Dewey Street, the one that she'd consider moving into before the neighbors threw a fit, That one sold for $1,300 on April 21st, 1941, and the mansion was sold for $3,117, even though it was in really bad shape, it was estimated that one would need to invest another four to five grand just to make it livable. 
When she died, Belle had $124.76 left in her checking account. The auction added another $5,800. She owned shares worth $3,600 in First National Bank. And her assets totaled $9,607, what would be around $180,000 today, according to the internet. Um, A lot of this money, though, went to funeral services and various other people just, like, tying up loose ends. And 5,480 of it went to the man in Michigan who was taking care of her daughter. As for the house on McGowan, or now Grant Street, during World War II, Bell's Mansion was a boarding house run by an African-American woman named Flora Hudson, and she rented out rooms in what she was now calling the Hudson Hotel. Segregation kept black men from being allowed to stay in most places in Lexington, so Hudson contracted with the Army to house black soldiers as they passed through town. She also rented to people released from the old narcotics hospital nearby, and she continued renting until the mid-1960s, when the owners converted the building into 13 units, renaming the dwelling the Floral Apartments. The building caught fire in December of 1973. It killed one resident, and they learned that a seven-year-old boy actually started the fire, while playing with lighter fluid, and he escaped by jumping out the second floor onto a parked car below. And after the fire, a few investors approached the owners. They wanted to save it and turn it into a restaurant, but the owner turned them down. Instead, he planned to have it demolished, and he held another auction to get rid of everything left inside. And... The advertisement for this auction is just my favorite thing ever, so I'm going to read the whole thing to you now. Quote, Little is left of the elegance that had paid host to the famous and infamous of the bygone era. Wallpaper in a cherub pattern hangs water-soaked from the ceiling in a room that once echoed to the call of ladies to the parlor. The wood of a parquet floor loosed by fire hoses, lie like children's blocks scattered in an empty hall. Mantle mirrors that once reflected candlelight now look out on the decay of another life. True, little is left, but who of you can dream a back bar from an old mantle or a use for old gold molding in the parlor's ceiling, a curio box or desk ornament from floor blocks? Who will bid on the iron mantle from Miss Annie's room for a conversation piece in a den or recreation room? Start the bidding on a stained glass window that illuminated the stairs where satin-muscled skirts led the way to the second floor. Who can use a gingerbread stairway that could tell a thousand tales? How about bricks for a fireplace or a garden wall? What can be made of old door facings or the inside shutters that separated fallen flowers from the prime Victorian world outside? If you can't stand quietly in the midst of clutter and hear soft voices, the tinkle of champagne glasses, or the wail of a downhearted frail floating back over the years, don't bother to come. It's a spooky old house, and we have nothing to sell but nostalgia. Thank you.
every bit of that house that could be removed was sold. And there was a story that one of Bell's former prostitutes actually came to the auction. So, quote, on the day of the auction, one of the first men to arrive said that he had heard one of Bell's old girls was coming to the sale. Shortly afterwards, a chauffeur-driven limousine pulled up in front of the house, and two elderly ladies, very tastefully dressed, were helped from the car by the driver. Each carried a gold-headed cane. On entering the house, they went from room to room, looking at each wall, ceiling, floor, and doorway. On the second floor, they went from room to room. Occasionally, one would point with her cane. The rooms were empty. There was nothing to point to unless to indicate where some piece of furniture had stood or where some event had occurred. After inspecting the entire second floor, they returned to the automobile and left. So the thought here was that several decades after their time working for Bell had come to an end, they came back one last time to see the place before it was demolished. And then another interesting side note is about the bed. So if you recall, one of her admirers had probably given Belle this giant over-the-top fancy bed. Well, that bed was sold at the first auction, but somehow it made its way back to the mansion while Flora Hudson was running it. One Kentucky governor offered her $7,000 for the bed, and when Flora died in 1987, it actually went up for auction and a Lexington attorney named Curtly B. Amos bought it for $12,600. I just, I find that so interesting, and I'd love to know where it is now. But every trace of the brothel that once operated on McGowan Street is now gone, including the street name itself. It's a single-family residence now, but Belle's legend lives on, on the streets, in the bars, and most certainly at the racetrack, where horses are still named after her from time to time. Thanks for listening to another episode of Kentucky History and Haunts. If you're enjoying the show, follow on social media. The Facebook page is Kentucky History and Haunts, and it's KY History Haunts on Instagram and Twitter. There is a link on any and all of those social media sites that you can go to that will connect you to the show on any platform. There's also a support button at that link that will allow you to donate just 99 cents a month to the show. I put a lot of hours into this bad boy, so... Any bit of help I can get, I greatly appreciate. Thank you all so much for listening, and until next time.